Welcome to Orphan Entertainment, the podcast dedicated to public domain and abandoned media. I'm your host, Christopher, and with me, as always, is the woman who is always the bell of the ball. It's Lydia. You could call me the queen if you want to. <laughs> Hi, Christopher. Well, I y'all didn't know us from the south, did y'all? <laughs> oh, God. Our apologies to any southern uh, <laughs> listeners. Hey, my dad is one of those southern listeners. Hi, dad. I, I do. I actually, I hail from the south, but not that far south. So, Likewise, likewise. <laughs> Well, I want to thank everyone for tuning in. We really do appreciate it. Orphan Entertainment is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have the option to do so, please rate and review the show. It really does help get the show out to more people. Another great way is just by sharing the episode you're listening to on whatever social media platform you use. If you are a Facebook user, there is a group that you can join, and this is a great place to find out what we're going to be covering next. And if you have any comments on the films or episodes, that's a really easy place to leave them. If you'd rather, you can send us an email with any comments, suggestions, or feedback on this or any episode. Just type or record a message and send it to orphanedentertainment at gmail.com. We do have a YouTube channel where you can watch many of the films we've covered here on the show. Just go to YouTube and search for Orphaned Entertainment. And you can now buy us a coffee. Follow the link in the show notes to Kofi.com, and you can make a one-time or recurring donation to help support the show. You'll find all these links on our webpage at orphanedentertainment.com. Let's listen to one of the five-minute mysteries and a promo for another podcast. And when we return, we head down south and visit the land of cotton and 1930s Dixieana. Another five-minute mystery. If my father, is he all right? We'll see, Mike. Where's the car? Just kept going after he got hit. He's all right, isn't he? I'm afraid not, Mike. Your father is dead. But, Mr. Floyd, how can the insurance company be so heartless? Now, don't get me wrong, Mr. Patterson. You'll get the money in time, just as soon as I've heard the story from you and Dr. Warren. When time is not good enough. I don't even have money to bury him decently. I'll be frank with you, Patterson. That's one of the reasons I've been asked to investigate this. You don't mean to say that... Don't get upset. Just tell me the story as it happened. You'll probably get the money tonight. Let's begin with you, Dr. Warren. There's nothing much I can tell you, Mr. Floyd. Please, Doctor, whatever you can. Mike's father was a man of about 65. His left leg was missing. That happened in a railroad crash. It was years ago. He seems to have used a single crutch to help him, judging from the callus on his hand. Is that correct, Mike? Yes, practically all the time. Where did the automobile hit him, Dr. Warren? Mainly on the right side, from the look of things. That's where the worst damage was done. All right. Mr. Patterson, suppose you tell me what you know about it. Well, we were walking north, facing the traffic on the highway. And the car that hit him was going south. That's right. I particularly noticed the license plate as it approached. It was a Florida car, maybe heading home. What make? I don't know. But it was from Florida. 
I was helping my dad along, as I always did when he walked on the highway. And this car came along at a terrific speed and swerved towards us. I tried to pull my father off the road, but he couldn't move fast enough. The car hit him with a sickening thud and, and jerked him away from me. That's all I can tell you. Well, I've got the whole story now, I think, from my report. I want to thank you, both of you. This will facilitate action. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. I, I suppose that means that I can get the money soon. Not exactly. That means that you'll go to the electric chair for the murder of your father. Why did Mr. Floyd charge Mike Patterson with murder? See if you can find the two flaws in his story. In a moment, you'll hear Mr. Floyd explain. But first... Hello, everyone. I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And we are your hosts for NASHICAST, the podcast about the films of Paul Nashi. We, for over five years, have brought you the joys of Spanish cinema, filtered through our brains to you. Yes. Now, what is it that qualifies two Southern boys to talk about films that came out of Spain? And I can't think of a single thing. There's nothing that qualifies. Nothing. nothing. Except that we just love, love them, love them, love them. We love them. Nashi Cast yeah. covers the films of Paul Nashi and any other Spanish horror film that we can pretend we know something about. Uh, yes. If you love beautiful women wearing incredibly short miniskirts in subarctic temperatures <laughs> chased by werewolves in leisure suits. If you love werewolves, vampires, unidentifiable beasts, or crazy people driving women around and talking like a maniac. <laughs> yes, flying cats, beheadings with axes. <laughs> Blood that looks like Sham- melted crayons. Shambling zombies, yeah. Some of the films that we've covered in the past are Mark of the Werewolf. How of the Devil. Vengeance of the Zombies. Or Arises from the Tomb. Tombs of the Blind Dead. Vampire's Night Orgy. Ooh, yes. Join us on this journey through the golden age of Spanish horror where Paul Nashi, Leon Klamowski, Jess Franco, Amando Diasorio take us through a filter Espanol. Join us for the Nashi cast. And now let's see if your observation is as keen as Mr. Floyd's. Let me go. Let me go, I tell you. You can't prove a thing. Mr. Floyd, why did you accuse Mike of murdering his father? Was it simply because he's beneficiary? No, Doctor. There are two things wrong with this story. First, he said his father was hit by a car with Florida license plates in front. Florida hasn't had front license plates in years. But more important, Mike said he was helping his father. Now, if a man's left leg is off, he uses a crutch on that side and is helped on the right side. And if they were facing traffic, Mike would have been on the inside and would have been hit by the car. We suspected what happened when we saw blood on Mike's own car, but now we know. Dixiena was a pre-code comedy musical produced by RKO Pictures. It was directed by Luther Reed and stars B.B. Daniels, Everett Marshall, Burt Wheeler, Robert Woolsey, Joseph Cawthorn, and is Bill Bojangles Robinson's film debut. Dixiana Codwell is a circus performer in the southern United States. She's also the love of a wealthy southern gentleman, Carl Van Horn. When he proposes marriage, she and her two of her friends, Ginger and Little Pee Wee, leave the circus to meet the Van Horn family on their plantation. Everything seems to be going fine until Pee Wee and Ginger let slip about Dixiana's history as a circus performer, which embarrasses and enrages Mrs. Van Horn. The three are kicked out of the house and they attempt to return to the circus, but another man, the unscrupulous Royal Montague, arranges it so the circus leader won't hire them back, 
forcing them to go to work for him instead. Monihu has plans to discredit Van Horn and ruin his family, all while taking Dixiana for his own. Bill Bojangles Robinson was an American tap dancer, actor, and singer, and the best-known and most highly paid African-American entertainer in the United States during the first half of the 20th century. He may be best known for appearing several times with Shirley Temple. His signature routine was his stair dance, where he would tap dance up and down a flight of stairs in a complex series of steps. He starred in the musical Stormy Weather in 1943, which was loosely based on his own life. B.B. Daniels is Dixiana Codwell. Uh, her career dates back to 1910 as a child actor in silent pictures. She transitioned from child to adult and from silent to talky with ease. All told, by the end of her career, which wasn't until 1969, she appeared in over 230 films and did work on stage and radio as well. Bert Wheeler is Pee-wee and Robert Woolsey is Ginger Dandy. Wheeler and Woolsey were a comedy duo, duo that began performing together in 1927 in the Broadway musical Rio Rita. They went to Hollywood to reprise their roles for the film version in 1929. The film's success convinced them to become a permanent team, and they continued to make very popular comedy feature films from 1930 until 1937, all for Archeo Radio Pictures, 21 movies in total. There was one film, So This Is Africa, in 33, which they made for Columbia when they were uh, in the middle of some contract disputes with RKO. Bert Wheeler played an ever-smiling innocent who was easily led and not very bright, but who would also sometimes display a stubborn streak of conscience. Robert Woolsey played a leering, cigar-smoking, fast-talking idea man who often got the pair in trouble. The Wheeler and Woolsey movies are loaded with joke book dialogue, original songs, puns, and sometimes racy double entendre gags, particularly in the earlier films as the 1934 production code put a damper on some of their fun. The two were a huge success for RKO, and they worked together until Woolsey's health declined. He struggled to complete 1937's High Flyers, and he passed away in 1938 from kidney disease. Wheeler continued to perform alone and with partners on vaudeville, Broadway, and in films. Three of their films are now in public domain, Dixiana, Half Shot at Sunrise, and Hook, Line, and Sinker. So don't be surprised if they show up again on the podcast. <laughs> Dixiana reunited the director and most of the cast of RKA's most successful film of 29, Rio Rita, but poor reception due to a glut of movie musicals at the time led to the film being one of the RKO's biggest disappointments of the year. The film lost an estimated $300,000, which works out to be about $5 million in today's dollars. Wow. Yeah, that, that was quite the hit. And that actually surprised me to hear that because that was one of the things that I was thinking when watching this film from the ones that we've covered in this era the musical doesn't seem to be, hasn't seemed to be as popular mm -hmm. as, I, when I think of musicals, I think 50s. Yeah. 50s, 60s. 40s. Maybe 40s, right. You know, mm -hmm. uh, 30s seems really early for the musical, but apparently it was a thing. Well, the jazz <laughs> singer was the first sound oh, good picture, point. wasn't it? Good point, yeah. Um, unless I know my history wrong, which is very likely. <laughs> But it, you know, it started off with just parts of of movies being actually captured with sound. And I think a mm -hmm. lot of that tended to be music, especially because it was so easy to get audio recordings of singers. It kind of made sense to have the record to go along with the film. 
Yeah, it's just interesting because, like I said, most of the films that we've watched in from this era have been more just the dramas or mm-hmm. the comedies. They haven't been very music-laden. Yes. I was so, very surprised that this one had so much music in it, actually. Right. And it is a legitimate musical where people just, oh, let's walk to the balcony and sing. <laughs> and I read where they've actually called it an operetta, which is interesting because mm. Everett Marshall was trained as an opera singer. And I got the impression that B.B. Daniels maybe had some experience with operatic song, but I, I didn't read that anywhere specifically. But Everett Marshall got his start singing like basically backup for operas. Interesting. Well, I think you can in in the way that he sings, I think that kind of comes it's through. It's very obvious. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Don't be well, surprised if you haven't watched the movie yet and suddenly you're in an opera. Well, the movie opens with music that feels operatic. The the voice singing at the beginning of the movie mm-hmm. does not sound like we have been trained to expect southern slavery music to sound no absolutely not (laughs) let's just drop that bomb right now yes (laughs) it does open with um a scene of the mississippi river and and workers on the river and at first you don't really know but it turns out this is a southern plantation and southern plantations during the era that this movie is filmed had slaves on them so this is your this is your warning what are we 10 minutes into the podcast now (laughs) yes singing about the river. <laughs> Ain't it wonderful that they can sing with such enthusiasticness about water? But that's the romantic old Mississippi. Yeah, it's a great river. Only made one mistake. They don't run through Pennsylvania. <laughs> oh, Dad. Still homesick for Pennsylvania? No, oh, I don't know. I'm getting kind of used to it. Hey, you know my slaves sing better than anybody else's slaves around here. That's because they love you. <laughs> You're always freeing someone of them. Yeah, I think I'll go down and free a couple of those tenors right now. But this it's not a central theme of the movie by any stretch. It's mentioned lightly at the beginning, and um, there are some characters in it that are 
presumably characters that are slaves, but there's nothing in this movie that's, you know, dealing heavily handed with that. It's it's completely a a set piece in this movie. Yeah, it is a a, a film of its time portraying a not bright spot in the United States history. And the characters are very much like you would expect to see from like Gone from the Wind. I mean, there was like the the, the Mamie characters and that sort of stuff mm-hmm. is, is in this film. So momentarily yeah. in passing, right? Yeah. So yeah, fair fair warning going in. I mean, it is the the happy slave uh, kind of mentality <laughs> through the. It is, and and we kind of talked a little bit, you know, behind the scenes about how to approach that, and and I brought up the point that early on, very like one of the first few lines is, you know, oh my slaves sing sing the best of anybody, and the son says, well that's because they love you because you're always free and one or a couple of them, right. so uh, <laughs> you know they set up that expectation that this is not this is not your stereotypical evil slave owner and then and it brushes right past that and the next scene that entire conversation is is gone right so. yeah yeah after that they are just they're they're servants in the house and how they're treated they're not treated any differently than probably servants of any race would exactly. be treated yes i agree with that yeah so don't uh this is not Santa Fe Trail. <laughs> there, there are none of the really awkward moments where you're going to go, oh, this is just awful. Um, I was a little bit nervous. There is one scene in it that made me super nervous that it was going to go that way. And there's one of the gags that you were you know, mentioning. You were mentioning Wheeler and Woolsey having these gags. And it start, they start with a gag that involves one of the servants. And I was cringing going, oh, this is awful. But then they repeat the gag to both the owner of the plantation and his wife. And then again, even later in the movie. And so it was where I thought, oh, no, this is just awful. It turns out that they just have no, they, they treat everybody the same. Yeah, I was a little worried about that, too. I was cringing the whole time that, um... They started doing it. They're like, oh, my God, they're just going to make this poor servant the butt of the joke. and Literal, pardon the pun, literally. butt of the joke. <laughs> oh, right. Man. Which is the joke. The whole joke is, you know, has to do with the kick in the pants. But, yeah, as you said, they, they, they do it again to Mr. Van Horn and they do it again to Mrs. Van Horn. <laughs> it's like, okay, so it's an equal opportunity. <laughs> well, and you mentioned that they had a lot of kind of you know, uh, joke book jokes in their repertoire. And I love the bit where they're starting to, you know, play out this joke against Mrs. Van Horn. And they say, oh, it, you know, it involves a bet. And she says, oh, well, that strikes my fancy. And they go, oh, so you've heard of it. (laughs) (laughs) I love the pun there. And he says, no, no, that's not what she said. (laughs) I read another example of of, of one of their sort of double entendre puns. It wasn't in this film. But it was a uh, a moment in some film or another where a uh, a woman uh, like kind of shows off her legs like oh are you looking at these and you're like lady I'm above that oh. <laughs> whoa <laughs> it is it is tongue in cheek and it is very quippy and I the the dialogue bits that they had I think in the past we've seen a couple of movies where there have been some quote comedic characters and we've agreed that man the movie would have been just fine if it had had more plot and less comedy. Because the the comedy that was in it was not that great. These two guys are actually pretty funny. I was prepared to be irritated. Yeah, I was prepared to be irritated. And then it turned out, well, the first introduction of Pee Wee and Ginger (laughs) actually caught me by surprise. Because it starts off 
and ki- they they're introduced in this um kind of grand show setting kind of a um kind of think of like a Shakespeare's Globe kind of setting and the hippodrome the hippodrome yes and and in comes all of these tumblers and behind them a, a small coach with a giant egg in it pulled by two ostriches and I thought wow that's pretty cool they got two ostriches pulling this egg and then it turns out that the ostriches are people <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's really funny when I the first time I watched it I did not catch on that it was actually not real ostriches until they started <laughs> tap dancing on the stage and I was like wait what <laughs> and I have to think in 1929 1930 when this movie was released when it was made and released you have to think that people who had never seen a real ostrich or had never seen a movie of an ostrich, especially this is 1929. A lot of people, almost, you know, very few people had televisions uh, or gosh, did anybody have a television at that point? I have to assume no. Probably not. No. Yeah, no. So if they if they hadn't seen an ostrich in a movie, they probably knew what one looked like, but they had no idea until the guy's take their bows and stand up and the top half of the costume comes off. I can only imagine the people that would have, they would have found that hilarious because you're thinking, wow, these trained ostriches are and especially children at the time <laughs> would have been like, wow, these trained ostriches were dancing with this lady. It's amazing. And then they bow and they come back up and there's a guy in the suit and it's the you know, classic Scooby-Doo moment. It's hilarious. The one complete with cigar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how the heck did he keep that thing lit inside? I don't guy? think it was lit. I, I did look. I'm like, how did he have the cigar? I think, I think, I do not think it was lit. I love too Pee Wee going to kiss his hand, to blow a kiss and his hand comes away and there's a big feather in his mouth. Yep. So there's some, there's some decent physical comedy in this and there are some pretty decent puns in it. It's probably a little heavier in the comedy than, it's definitely a little heavier in the comedy side than modern audiences need. Uh, mm-hmm. We could have done with, in modern days, a little bit more plot or a little bit more character development. We have seen other films. One not that far was it the uh, the gorilla or whatever mm-hmm. that uh, obviously had a comedy team shoehorned into a film. Yes, which is what I was thinking of. That's what I was expecting with this one. And from the yes. same year, we covered um, just Imagine a while ago, uh, a, a year or two ago now, and that had that L Brindle in there. Mm-hmm. And that was the one where he was like frozen in time and woke up in the far flung 1980 uh, future. And he was really frustratingly annoying because he didn't <laughs> need to be in the picture at all. And he just kept doing his little shtick. And it's like, you're not funny. Maybe mm-hmm. you were funny in 1930. You're not funny. <laughs> um, these guys are not awful. I was expecting <laughs> to cringe. There are moments where I found myself laughing out loud. And mm-hmm. you know, there certainly there's not, you know, super deep comedy involved in here, but they do build a couple of jokes really well. Yeah. Um the parts where their jokes flop are the most cringeworthy, I think. You know, the the glass and saucer trick that fails and it's like mm-hmm. <laughs> But but I think there's enough to offset it. I'm not I'm not angry that these two are in this movie by any stretch. And with as short of a plot as it would have been without them, you know, it it makes sense that they're in the movie. <laughs> that sounds so that sounds like such a backward compliment. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was watching uh Woolsey as Ginger Dandy here and him with his cigar and his round glasses and everything. And I'm thinking this guy he and George Burns had to go to the same school of I was, comedy. I was thinking 
Groucho. Like the really? pretty much the whole time. He had everything except the eyebrow waggle. Oh, okay. I kept thinking of George Burns. That is funny. I, I, and I can't help but wonder if they both had like the same influences because they were both coming up at the same time. Oh, yeah. That's it. And it, it is that there must be a book out there somewhere or a film out there same, somewhere I, exploring the connections of this early film comedy. If there's not, there should be. But I, I think you're right. Where so much of it, I suppose, came from vaudeville. I mean, oh yeah, absolutely. That's where the vast majority of the, the that's where they all got their their start. <laughs> so probably you're probably exactly right. They probably got their influence from starting off in the same place. Mm-hmm. No, the comedy that they they are they are, they can be in this film a, a, a lot of fun. There is a lot of just even little sight gags with them um, uh, when. Um, when Pee Wee and Ginger first meet uh, uh, Mrs. Van Horn, mm-hmm. and she's like, she bows. Well, Pee Wee curtsies. <laughs> just little little things like that just kind of make you make you chuckle when you're watching them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there definitely are enough. There's a, a whole bit where they're both vying for the same girl, and it ends with you know the yes. gr- the girl taking a tumble because. The other one kicks her in the seat thinking it's the, the one. And when she gets helped up, she just loses her skirt and dances off in her petty or in her uh, in her bloomers. bloomers? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's it is funny. I definitely. Again, you're, this is a 1929, 1930 movie. And so the, the gags always run long. They just do. But they're less painful than in a lot of other contemporary movies <laughs> that we've yes. watched. We should probably talk about the actual stars a little bit, maybe. What? <laughs> Believe it or not, these two weren't the stars, although I guess an argument could be made. B.B. Daniels is Dixiana Codwell, beautiful starlet in 1930. Uh, she's a beautiful woman. Uh, her singing voice that seems like all the women in this time have that <laughs> Betty Boop kind of quality yeah. to her voice. The character is Nanny. Uh, she's played by Dorothy Lee. And she, I genuinely had, I wondered if she didn't do the voice of Betty Boop. So B.B. Daniels, it's all that, it's kind of high-pitched and trilling. But mm-hmm. the way they speak is also high-pitched and trilling. She B.B. Daniels, who plays Dixiana, the title character, uh, also was in the original, the 1931 version of The Maltese Falcon. And oh, interesting. I, I yeah, I pulled a quick little clip. It's not the Marlon Brando one. Don't get super excited. I had to look it up to be sure. Uh, ni- 1941 is the Marlon Brando one. The 1931. No, I'm saying Marlon Brando. That's the wrong name. Humphrey Bogart. Humphrey Bogart. Thank you. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, but the 1931 with BB Daniels in it, she doesn't sound like she does in this movie. Mm. Now, and it's only 
two, it's only one or two years after this movie is made. So I have to think that something changed, either, either she's playing a femme fatale and so she intentionally changes her voice or Hollywood has within that short two year period discovered that that really high pitched kind of voice doesn't turn up well on audio recordings. It's a lot more difficult to understand what they're saying. What's the cause of this scandalous behavior? This gambler said something about you I resent. Mr. Montague said something about me? Well, I'm sure Mr. Montague couldn't possibly say anything about me that anyone could resent. You're quite right, Miss Dixiana. It was a mistake. No, it wasn't. I insist. You're quite mistaken, and any impression you might have had to the contrary is wrong. And I take this occasion to wish you good evening. Good evening. I have to imagine that's why in the 60s and 70s you had a lot of children's voices dubbed over by middle-aged women. But, <laughs> <laughs> but in, in this case, it is the same character, she's do, or the same actress, and she is doing the same voice, or she is doing her own voice, but it's completely different. So... Uh, but her, the, her singing in this is what's really interesting to me because it is operatic, but it is also very high-pitched and trilly. Yes. You can't understand everything she's singing, and or you're actually... I don't know if it's so much that you just can't understand it or if your brain is, like, trying to shut it out because it's... <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is hard to understand. And, you know, recording recording technology at this time is not very good there are moments when everett marshall is singing and of course he's a tenor I, I assume a tenor i forget i'm sorry i did know a minute ago but i forgot which he is but he's singing in obviously a much lower tone and it's still difficult to understand some of the dialogue is you know it's grainy because this was recorded oh gosh almost 100 years ago now yeah 96 years ago whatever mm-hmm. it is yeah yeah everett marshall as carl van horn i think personally kind of like one of the weaker actors in the piece, he felt a little too stagey. He felt, yeah. Well, there's a word for it, isn't there? And it, we would I'm typically sure say there is. dramatic, but almost, <laughs> <laughs> what's the, maybe dramatic is the right word. He felt more like a silent film actor, which is ironic because this, I believe, was his first movie. Um, so he was a, he was stage acting before this and doing opera. Well, that might explain it, because that's something that I've noticed, too, when you talk about early talkies, since everyone's coming from the silent era, or everyone's coming from the stage, everything is exaggerated when it doesn't need to be, and yes. you pick it up more because we can hear you, yeah. you know, and that's where I felt like with him, everything, his movements, the way he spoke and everything very much felt like he was projecting to the back of the audience yes and bb daniels didn't feel that way and it and Mm-mm. you know she's been doing films since she was seven is that right yeah child actress yeah yeah, so, yeah very young and so even though they were silent films she knew you you don't need to get to the person in the back room you only need to get to the camera it can be a lot more subtle and, and i feel like you're exactly right ever marshall is the standout over actor in this movie <laughs> to the point to the point that i actually was I rooting for the bad guy a little bit because he doesn't. He feels like he's got more depth. Not, yes, not just yes. in acting, but is his personality. You feel like he's really maybe for the wrong reasons, but he's really interested in Dixiana, <laughs> and you never really catch that 
that spark between Carl and Dixiana. Yeah, this was a Rafe Harold as Royal Montague, which is a fantastic villain name. <laughs> Royal Montague. <laughs> Royal Montague. <laughs> but yeah, he's the one that actually felt like he had the most depth of all the characters, even though he was supposed to, he's the bad guy. <laughs> I think it's actually Ralph. He's born in America. <laughs> Oh, is it an R? Oh, it is an R. It is an L. Yeah. It's, I thought I it was an I. I know we're so used to the to the British rapes now, but no. <laughs> it is Ralph. It is Ralph Harold. Well, it's, it's Harold with an with E. With an E. I know. <laughs> Harold with an E. But no, he, and I feel like he, like, yes, he definitely has the look of the bad guy. He's got the evil cackle down for sure. Mm. And, and it was actually kind of funny. I, I felt like he didn't go like over the top, like the more, <laughs> but no. he definitely evil cackled. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, I'm sure. But I was just watching the first 20 minutes or so of the movie again before we recorded just to, uh, to, to spend some time, try to use it wisely. <laughs> and the scene with him kind of going toe to toe with uh, Van Horn at the Hippodrome mm-hmm. you know, after the circus. And I, he's a great villain. Mm-hmm. Weirdly enough, Carl's the one with the mustache. <laughs> But you expect Ralph to twirl. To twirl, him. absolutely. <laughs> well, so there's the my favorite scene with with um, Royal with Montague. They don't really call him Royal, I don't think, except no, in no, third it's... person. But my favorite scene with Dixiana, Dixiana and Montague is when he thinks she's trying to set Carl up, and they're talking about how they're going to trick him into playing cards and lose and you know take all his money and get him to go into a duel. What are you going to do with that boy in there? What I've been waiting for a long time. He wants to gamble. But he's been drinking. Who gave it to him? (laughs) You ask me that? (laughs) (laughs) My, but you're clever. (laughs) Have you got any money with you? I'm not thinking about that. I've seen cards lead to anger. And anger to the dueling oaks. Wait! What is it? Let me play against him. Why? I'll never forget the humiliation of leaving his father's plantation. You're wonderful when you want revenge. Revenge? That's it. Will you give it to me? I'd give you anything. Can you deal cards? Can't you? <laughs> and let you play him. <laughs> Say, you're a marvel. <laughs> and I thought you were a little saint. <laughs> Someday you'll find out what I am. All right. Get the cards. That'll give me a moment alone with him. And I love... it. It's, to me... It doesn't feel so much like an evil character, even though he clearly is, you know, the quote bad guy in this. It feels a lot like the Phantom of the Opera. Hang on with me here, because you've got. <laughs> no, I think I'm on track. <laughs> you, you've Go. got Raul and you've got Christine, and they're madly in love, right? But mm-hmm. deep down inside, every person in the world really wants her to get together with the Phantom. Nobody wants her to end up with Raul. Nobody in the world wants Christine to end up with Raul. You have to be like a heartless schmuck to want her to end up with Raul. No, you want her to get with the Phantom. And in this movie, Montague is the Phantom. 
And mm-hmm. so even though you're like, yeah, he's doing bad things and he's doing them the wrong way and he's really doing evil things, you're still secretly convinced that he really does love Dixiana more than Carl does. Well, and I think it's a case where Montague has a lack of morals. Yeah. He's not he, he's not doing things to be evil. He just has very low morals. He's not going to be tying anyone to the railroad tracks. <laughs> But he's not going to, like, not push someone in front of a bus if that's going to, you know, work out best for him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so he's so he's fantastic to watch. I think he's very entertaining to watch. I'd love to see him in something else. And I, and we're fortunately, you know, where Everett Marshall only did a couple of movies, Ralph Harold did go on to do a number of movies, I think over 100 and so hopefully I'll run across him again sometime in the near future. Unfortunately, most of those roles don't seem to have been major film roles. Mm. But uh, I, I feel like he's, you know, he and and Mr. Van Horn, Carl's fra- father, were the winners in this movie. Dixiana didn't ir- irritate me, surprisingly. I expected her to irritate me. But the end of the movie really made her a decent character in my opinion but those two guys are the most fun the van horns are who i want to talk about next uh joseph cawthorn as cornelius van horn and jabina i would go with jabina howland yeah (laughs) as birdie van (laughs) that'd be my guess not a word i've ever seen before those two were the highlights of the film for me Mm. the two of them together i mean Woolsey and Wheeler are supposed to be the comedy duo, <laughs> but these two I found so much more fun whenever they had scenes together. I, I was a little cringy. So Mrs. Van Horn is an overbearing, uh, she's the kind of wife I secretly fear I am. <laughs> <laughs> and so hopefully I'm not, but every once in a while I think, oh, <laughs> I hope that didn't come across like Mrs. Van Horn. Oh, <laughs> Well, Mr. Van Horn is the type of, of, of husband and father that I hope I am. <laughs> Everybody wants in their life. Absolutely. He's fantastic. He's really sweet. Well, even, yes, she is overbearing, but I think the two of them together are, are just so much fun to watch. I do like that he doesn't just get trampled. There are so many little aside comments that he makes that, you know, you you know, he's he reminds me. I'm going to just keep referencing other things. He reminds me of Mr. Bennett. You know, he's got this irritating wife that is basically, you know, she's socially bankrupt. She just thinks the only thing that's important in life is money and connections. But he's able to maintain a modicum of humor about it. And I appreciate that. Any Anytime I see anybody that reminds me of that character, I'm always really pleased with him. The scene uh, early on when they're in the in the bedroom, and she goes to wake him up. No woman would ever marry a man if she could see him asleep first. Wake up, you sea lion! Wake up! Wake up! Oh, do I have to? Wake up! Wake up! Oh, yeah. Oh, I just had a most wonderful dream. Ah, oh, tell me, darling. What was oh, it? Oh, it was beautiful. Tell me, tell me. I dreamed... Yes? I dreamed I was once again a widower. You Lord Chesterfield! I'll make myself a widow unless you stop snoring 
and learn better manners? What's the matter with my manners? Matter? Huh. Why, you don't even look like a gentleman. Well, do you think you look like a lady? Well, I will tonight. Oh, why can't you act like these southern men, full of grace and fire? I got no fire. I'm from Philadelphia. Uh, that's what's the matter with you. You're so dull. You're so cold. You... you eel. Say, now, listen, maybe I'm an eel, but I refuse to act like a monkey. Why not? Well, every time I meet a lady, you want I should bow down and kiss her hand. And I hate the smell of soap. Now, you listen to me. I've been listening to you for you years. You listen I'm to me. I'm sick and Please. Oh, you're the clumsiest, most awkward Dutchman that ever owned a plantation. Well, that's all right. I didn't want to own the plantation. The place was wished on me by a will. Well, you've got it. Well. You've got to live up to it. Get out of bed. I will when I get good and ready. What? And I'm ready right now. Say, for why I should get up so early? For your lesson in manners. Manners? Is this manners? Can't yeah. you wait till I get some clothes on? How can a man take manners lessons in his digibility? Come here. Oh, dear. Cornelius? No, I like Bertie, dear. Don't lose your temper. Yeah. Now. Now. Imagine I am a lady. That would be impossible. No, no. I am a lady being introduced to you. Ah, somebody else. Yes. <laughs> well, that's different. Yes. <clears throat> Madame, I have the honor of presenting Mr. Van Horn. Now, the lady stretches out a languid hand and she says, Sir, I am delighted. Well, she should be. <laughs> no, no, no. Now, now bow. No. Bow deeply. Oh, from here? Yes. Yes, that's fine. Kiss her hand and say, Madame, the honor is mine. And may I extend a welcome to the fairest lady who has ever graced my home. I got to say all that? Yes. <coughs> well, I'll try it. <coughs> Madame? No, Madame! Damn, damn, damn! Don't let the servants hear you swear. Oh, you, you tree-toad. You horsefly! You, you! I don't know what to call you! Well, let's see. How about a wood tick? Who's there? It's Cupid, Mrs. With great news. Great news? That must be from my son, Carl. Great tidings. Yes. Master Carl has picked himself a bride. A bride? And is fetching over here today. Where did he pick her and who is she? What's her name? How you expect me to know that? Hmm. All I know. She's mighty fine and sweet. Oh, but Cornelius, she might be anybody for all I know. Yeah, well, that's all right. You don't know such a much, you see. <laughs> I've known my son since infantry. And I'll bet you that as a wife picker, he's a mass pastor. A postman. <coughs> he's a past master. And Master Carl is bringing two distinguished gentlemen also. Oh, distinguished gentlemen. Oh, Cornelius, we may get into high society at last. May get in, say. Uh, you leave it to my son Carl and we're in now. Oh. You hear what he said? Yes. Carl's bringing some aristocratics oh. here. <laughs> We're getting populated. Oh, I must give some orders. No, no. I'll give the orders. Yeah? All right, you give the orders, but I'll still wear pants. <laughs> <laughs> I laughed out loud at that. Because <laughs> he's there sawing logs and snoring. Oh. <laughs> 
Yeah, I laughed out loud at that. <laughs> and their whole interaction, and then of course when they get news that their son's coming home with a with a woman that he's planning on marrying, he's bringing two distinguished guests along with them. <laughs> and they're all excited, like, oh, we, I better go out and get some orders. And she's like, I'm going to give the orders. And she's like grabbing, she's just in a panic and just grabbing clothes. Well, she actually grabs his pants <laughs> and starts to walk out the door. And he snags it from her as she goes out the door. He's like, well, you give the orders. I'm still wearing the pants. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> yeah, I do agree. They're They're highly entertaining together, you know, despite my secret fear. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's most, if not everyone in the cast, that's really uh, significant. The film itself, the plot, the story, it's it's okay. I guess it's, as far as the story goes, it's kind of like, well, we've seen this before, <laughs> uh, and we've seen it many times since. It's really the only thing that makes us any different is the comedy duos and the, uh, well, the two comedy duos, if you count the, uh, the Van Horns. I, I felt like it was better than I expected. So I, it, I liked the movie much more the second time. Maybe I was paying better attention. Maybe I knew a little bit what to look for the second time. When the plot actually develops, which isn't really until you get into the gambling hall, um, and you start seeing... You know, you get a little glimpse of Dixiana's character when she says, no, I'm not going to I'm not going to take Carl away from his parents, you know, which is where you get to see a little bit more of Mr. Van Horn's character, which is super enjoyable. Mm -hmm. But at the point where you see her in the gambling hall and you start seeing her working out how to make things turn out the right way and how to protect Carl, you know, despite his his slump that he's in. um, I, I actually at that point started to really like the character a lot more. And, and of course, you know, that's part of that is the scene where Montague is, you know, trying to is thinks that Dixiana is out to, you know, just rake Carl over the coals. And he's super, you know, he's real excited about that and, you know, getting into discussing it with her. And so there's a lot about the movie in the second half that I think develops a little bit more. The, the little, the little bit between Pee Wee and Ginger where they're vying for Nanny's affections opens up a lot more comedy was it nanny or poppy so that's a great question in the credits she's listed as nanny peewee's girl Hmm, okay but she is you know i i don't recall there having been an additional girl a very very beginning peewee says something about oh no dixiana you can't marry this guy what about me you know but pretty quickly his attention (laughs) seems to shift uh, it could be Poppy, though. That's a good question. It could be. Apparently, she actually appeared in. Um, she often appeared with the Wheeler and Woolsey. Hmm. So she kind of Dorothy Lee uh, followed followed them around through their films. That makes sense. Yeah, mm-hmm. I could see that. Uh, I could see that because she fits really well with the two of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there, you know, there's some there's some funny bits in there, and there's a bit where they there's a bit where they go to duel over her. It, again, it's a bit that runs long, but the the end result of that bit is worth sitting through it because the <laughs> the very end of that duel is worth every moment. I think it actually had me laugh out loud again. So um, yeah, I think I feel like the first part of the movie is introducing people and getting you to know who they are, and there's you know runs long, but then once you get into the second part and you start seeing, I I, I love how. I, I love I, I really enjoyed how she 
prevented the duel. I thought, I don't want to give away too many spoilers. I thought, you know what? That actually, especially at the time, I felt like her taking the action she took was kind of unconventional. And today, we would fully expect to see what she does in this movie. But I feel like in this movie, made in this time, what she does is pretty pretty unconventional. And so I, I felt like it was actually more enjoyable getting to see the end. And, and when it got to the very end of the movie, of course, this is a 1930 movie. You know, uh, this is not Romeo and Juliet. I don't think I'm spoiling any too, anything too much. <laughs> yes, by saying, the right people end up together. Yes, at the very end of the movie, there's just there's just a little bit. You get to see her as the Mardi Gras queen, which is a real thing, by the way. I had to yep. look it up. I had no idea there's such thing as a real Mardi Gras, Mardi Gras king and queen. I'm super excited to know this. For the first time in my life, I want to go to Mardi Gras now. But... <laughs> 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 but um, I, the, the very, very end, there's just a little moment between uh, Dixiana and Carl. And I, I literally out loud said, aw. Oh, when, yes, <laughs> when she, the she scoots end, over and yes, pats the seat. I was yeah. like, oh, that's so, and I love too, you know, she, she asks, you know, the, the, for the permission and the, the little gesture. It's just super cute. So yeah, now you have to watch it if you want to know what I'm talking about. Ha ha. <laughs> Well, and I, I won't, I don't think it's a spoiler. I think it's something to actually kind of get people to maybe watch the film is also the last 20 minutes, I think, of the film are in color. Yes. And which I was told, I actually had a moment where I thought, so I, I started watching it and then I finished watching it the next day and I finished and I, and I just happened to pick up right about where that split happens. And I thought I had clicked on the wrong video. <laughs> I was like, Oh no, <laughs> I got a color one. No, I want to finish watching the black and white one. There is no all black and white one. They're all the first portion of it is black and white. And then as soon as it gets into Mardi Gras, boom, it's in color. Right. And that, I mean, now you see where that $5 million went <laughs> that they lost uh, shooting in color in 1930. Uh, <laughs> Was uh, probably quite the uh, the accomplishment oh, there. Oh gosh, and that must have all been hand touched. The colors look very muted and yes, I, the, yeah. possibly. I want to say that was si- um, well. Interesting side point: color television was. This was uh, t- 1929 was the very first year that color television was publicly demonstrated. Oh, interesting. So they had the technology. Of course, nobody had it yet. But yeah. The, it, they actually were already on the way of being able to actually film in color. Right. Well, they uh, looking at the uh, the notes and everything on it, it was actually uh, Technicolor sequences. Oh, wow. They said. So it was actually filmed in color. Wow. It was not hand-tinted. Wow. Yeah. Very interesting. And those, actually, those reels were actually thought lost for a very long time. It wasn't uh, – wow. they only rediscovered them in, like, the late 80s. Oh, Wow. Wow, and they kind of were reunited with the uh, with the film. So did the film just end then, and they didn't have the ending? No, I think they probably had black and white. Okay. <clears throat> so I think they had the whole film. They just didn't have the Technicolor reels. Wow, how very interesting. This is good podcasting, guys. Lydia going, wow, over and over. <laughs> <laughs> it's really fun to see the film in color. I mean, they did it... It was kind of neat. It was a little bit like the, uh, you know, the the Wizard of Oz yes. thing, where it's all black and white until you get to Oz, and then it's in color. Well, yep. yeah, it, everything's black and white until you get the Mardi Gras, and of course, <laughs> Mardi Gras is going to be in color. Yes. Yeah, it was really interesting for those of you who are interested in uh, historical fashion out there. Uh, Montague says, yeah, let's get Dixiana to be the Mardi Gras queen. 
And when she shows up in her costume for Mardi Gras, she's in a Regency-inspired dress. <laughs> mm-hmm. So she goes from being in this Victorian era, you know, 19 or 1860s, 1850s, 1860s, to, 18, to suddenly, boom, she's in this Regency dress. And my immediate thought was, wow, that's super risque. You can see the shape of her body. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, wow, you can see the shape of her backside. Holy cow. I had to remind myself, oh, yeah, you know, this is the 30s. So they, I, whether that was a choice to say, oh, yeah, let's make it an old-fashioned dress for that time, which is a genius move by the fashion, uh, by the, um, the, costume dra- the costume coordinator, or if they were just ignorant and thought, oh, this looks a lot more like a 1930s dress. It was, it was really interesting to see and kind of shocked. I think it's, it's interesting to see color in 1930 is not the same as the color we see in like the 1950s. <laughs> not at all. I mean, the, you realize how unreal uh, latter-day films are when they go to color. When, when you talk about the color musicals and the the big uh, extravaganzas where all the color is just, a, just punched up a little bit. So I... everything feels a little bit more down to earth in this <laughs> well i guess i always thought I, I had for a period of time a 1960s orange chenille sofa and i maybe that had a lot of influence on me but i always just assumed that in the 1940s and 50s materials that were chosen really were punched up we wear a lot of muted colors and of course everything is neutral neutral now but I, I wonder how much of that is punched up and how much of that is just really back then. It was okay to put like pea green and bright orange together. <laughs> but it was, a, it was a neat surprise seeing it go to color and it kind of made the, uh, the end of the film enjoyable. It made it feel special. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Kind of magical. Mm-hmm. And talk about, I mean, the ending too, you're talking about Mardi Gras, you're talking hundreds of extras. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of dancers. I mean, this was a big production. Yeah, yeah. The end sequence, especially where they're doing the gigantic setup. I don't understand. I still don't understand where the end scenes were supposed to have been set. No, because it looked like a soundstage <laughs> to me. Right. Yeah, <laughs> this was not on the street of New Orleans. Yeah, presumably <laughs> it was supposed to be an interior shot of a building in New Orleans, but it doesn't look anything like it. But that set alone must have been. A headache to dance on. There oh. are three sets of stairs that all yeah, look extremely steep to me. They've, it, it's got to be about three stories tall. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, that's... <laughs> I, I just... There were a couple of points where, you know, of course there are multiple dancers dancing on the stairs. And at the, near the very end, they're kind of weaving back and forth across the stairs. like, And it makes a really interesting visual... It's very stimulating visually, but at one point then like two of them step in and then they step back between the other two and then out. And I thought, I wonder how many times those dancers went to step back and tripped because you're stepping upstairs backwards. Right. These are the things I think about when I watch these movies for you guys. Well, yeah, you wonder, you wonder how many dancers (laughs) were taken out in the outtakes and they had to get new ones in. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. How many people just fell off the side? Because yeah, there's, there's nothing to catch them on either side. There are no handrails. Or when Dixiana is going up the stairs and she has a train that is literally like like 30 feet long. The length of long. the stairs, yeah. Yeah. 
And so it, people have to carry it as she walks. And I'm like, God, if anyone's off at all and, or doesn't pick up their end and she goes to take a step. And, <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. That's a, that's, <laughs> oh, my goodness. No, it was interesting. So I did just a little bit of digging on Mardi Gras Queens. And there is, I found a website that showed nine different Mardi Gras queens through, I think it was Life, actually, like Life magazine. And they were mostly in the 30s. And mostly they had trains kind of like that. Wow. Big 20, 30 foot long trains in these super elaborate. It's really fun, too, because, of course, they do the they do the Mardi Gras king and queen now as well. And to me, they all kind of look the same. But... These ones from the 1930, 1934, that era, they went to a lot of effort to make them look very different from one another. So mm. even though all the photos are in black and white, it's worth a look. If you're interested in, in you know, that kind of historical stuff and this has piqued your interest, I recommend looking it up. I think it'd be interesting, too, if anyone's even familiar with Mardi Gras today – Mm -hmm. to see how it's portrayed in 1930. Because I'm oh, thinking yeah. Mardi Gras in 1930 is oh. not the same <laughs> as Mardi Gras Well, today. I mean, <laughs> what they could show on a movie <laughs> is not the same as what you'd see on the streets of New Orleans. That's I for just, sure. I <laughs> um, just can't imagine 1930s um, beads getting you the same response <laughs> as what they might today. <laughs> well, that's true. It was a lot harder to get all of those buckles and things on your guard or your girdle off so yeah yes. definitely a little bit different but i would imagine you probably got some leg you probably got a little bit in the action that's true imagine. oh yeah yeah, yeah. oh is that an ankle skin. whoa there, i mean and you know the last dance bit with ginger where he's got that line of girls and there's definitely some very very high thigh flashing in that so yeah that's true <laughs> And in color. And in color. <laughs> you can see their thighs. Scandalous. <laughs> I, was, I tell my husband, cover your eyes, you can see your shoulder. <laughs> cover your eyes, you can see your thigh. <laughs> well, even actually, even early in the film, she was showing some shoulder and stuff when she was uh, the, the ostrich egg girl. She pops out and she's got a little bit of cleavage and some shoulder yeah. showing and everything. Well, that's so. acceptable. Tell you what, mm. any anything like from the decolletage and up was totally acceptable in evening wear evening wear only but to be able to see the shape of the lower half of a woman's body was very risque in, well, I in, imagine, the, in the setting of this movie of course well and i'm i'm sure that one of the places you could go to do that would be something mardi like gras. a show or a circus <laughs> yes or mardi gras right? yes Yes, exactly. Well, and what we think of is, you know, what we think of as scantily clad now is nudity in the 1860s, full-blown nudity, you know. Mm -hmm. What they thought of as scantily clad certainly wasn't what we think of as scantily clad <laughs> now. <laughs> but you could find contemporary nudity in places. I'm sure you could. Because was, nudity was a thing. People were nude then. I mean, every <laughs> once in a while, just to take a bath. <laughs> Even if you hate the smell of soap, like Mr. Van Horn. <laughs> yes. I hate the smell of soap. I suppose it's better than it smell, your hand smelling like other things. But <laughs> Right. <laughs> oh, my. Well, and with that, we should probably rate this movie. We should. We should go ahead and rate this one. 
it is watchable. It is not as cringeworthy as I was expecting it to be when it you know when it started and it really got into like oh, this is where the the setting is and this is what's going on, but it's not extraordinary. It's kind of like a um, little bit maybe maybe of a historical oddity uh, just because of the uh, the last two reels or whatever it is being color. I don't know. I wouldn't I, two. I think I'd give it a two. Uh, well, so I had to take a, a quick moment there and look up what Rotten Tomatoes says about Dixiana. <laughs> mm, okay. Yeah, Dixi- my <laughs> wife actually asked me, is like, do you read any reviews or anything before no. you talk about it? Like, like, no, I tend to try to avoid that kind of stuff. She's like, you should look at my NDB when, you, when, when, you, when you're done talking about it. <laughs> so, and I think, you know, we have a, li- a little bit. Uh, so I'm just going to put it out there. Rotten Tomatoes gave this movie a 14%. Uh, but I think you and I, when we're reviewing these, we're, we're taking them with a little bit different mentality in mind. We're looking at a specific type of movie. We're looking at a movie that's that nobody thought was important enough to claim. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or that they just got distracted and didn't put the paperwork in early enough. Right. We're not, you know, we're not looking at movies that have been you know, critically acclaimed and and that have been fought over by studios and have been huge budget productions and and giant names typically. Nor nor are we looking for films that hold up. We're not looking for films that, you know, have stood the test of time or anything like that. We're looking for the movies that nobody else wanted. They're (laughs) literally, they're orphaned that's why we called this podcast orphan entertainment and so i think it's important to like i i looked that up out of curiosity i'm with you christopher i don't look up ratings before i I think about how i want to rate a movie Uh, and and i i was curious just strictly from the standpoint that i kind of want to give this movie a three um think you know in a lot of that is because i'm comparing it to the other films that we've watched i'm comparing it to to all the other movies out there that aren't the top 10 movies you think about when you think about a black and white movie you know when you think about a film a film that has entirely it's entirely cast and directed with people you've never heard of before and so you know going back through i think i think 3 is maybe too generous but i think I, I'm a little, I don't want to give it a two. A two is almost like, you know, if you've got nothing better to watch, yeah, this is a fine movie to watch. One is like, if you literally are stuck on a desert island and there's no other movie available, right. you watch this movie because it's one Othel. <laughs> this is far from the worst film that, we've, that we've seen. This is yeah. not a film that I'm going to tell people, no, under no circumstance, watch this film. <laughs> It's just not a film that I'm going to like walk to someone the next day and like, oh, have you seen anything interesting lately? Well, let me tell you about (laughs) Dixiana, you know. But I think it's fun to talk about. I think it's one of those movies that there's certainly enough in it to talk about that, you know, if you if you have a movie review group or you know like a book club but with movies I think this would not be a bad movie to watch for that I think it's got enough in it and it certainly has more happened than than several of the movies we've watched from this era and so you're not just sitting there going oh I wish something would happen now or you're not going you know cringing every time somebody delivers the line because it's so poorly delivered so I I kind of I'm I'm torn I want to give it two and a half so now that I've taken 
four and a half minutes to come up with my rating. <laughs> I am going to give it a two and a half. I think that's fair. I think three is maybe a right. little too generous, but two is yeah. a little bit too stingy. Um, I want to say, you know, if, you, if you're looking for something to watch that you wouldn't typically watch, I think TCN is not a bad option. Maybe two and a half is really the way to go because <laughs> I, I feel in the same way. It's just, it's not bad. It's just, it's not good. I, it's I don't not know how great. to. It's yeah. got enough odd pieces in it. Like, if, like for example, if you're really into costume design, I think Dixiana is a good movie to watch. It's got mm-hmm. enough kind of offbeat design in it. It's got some great examples of what not to wear. Mrs. Van Horn is a is a poster <laughs> child for what not to wear for your body type. Um, you know, there's, I think there's some interesting music in it. There are two songs in this movie. I think it's a, a, a kiss, a tear, a sigh was one of the movies that the, the song that they both sing together. Hmm. Um, and, and it was actually, I, I was like, Oh, this is actually a pretty good song. And the lyrics, if you can understand them, cause it is a little high pitched and squeaky. Yeah. I was like, these are actually, these are actually good lyrics. Yeah, so I kind of wish, uh, I, I kind of want to go and try to dig up and see if we can find the actual lyrics to the songs mm-hmm. because there are, maybe maybe some of these songs are really good, but I just can't grab onto what they're singing mm-hmm. to enjoy them. And the, and the style of singing, if you're not deep into opera, this is, this is I wouldn't call this a musical, I would call it an operetta. Mm-hmm. And uh, strictly because of the style of music. But if you've ever seen Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, some of them sing much more operatically than others. So that's kind of mm-hmm. what you're going to get with this. But yeah, I, I two and a half is right for me. I think it's it's a movie that I wouldn't mind coming back to in a couple of years and rewatching to go, oh yeah, I remember loving that character. Oh yeah, I remember that gag being funny. Oh yeah, that's an interesting costume. Uh, it's not one where I would say, you know, if you've got nothing better to do, watch it. I think there's enough in it. There's enough humor in it that's that's captivating. There's enough of a really strong character in Dixiana near the end, uh, you know, in the last yeah, half sure. that she's worth seeing. I, of course, we've talked about Montague and the others. So, yeah, I'm happy with that. Two and All right. And... <laughs> And also think about, too, for a film in 1930, there's so few films of 1930 of this level of production. That's true. Yeah. Certainly uh, that we've seen. That we've come across. Exactly. So that alone uh, would give it a little bit of an edge as far as uh, whether you should watch or not. Just Yeah. Definitely true. I guess that will do it then. I don't have anything else to say. Me neither. All right. <laughs> we'll bring this one to a close then. I, again, wanted to thank everyone for tuning in. Lydia, thank you very much. As always, it's always a pleasure to talk about the films. Every this time. is This is definitely <laughs> one of those films where I, I liked watching it fine. I enjoyed talking about it more. Yeah, that's valid. Well, and I enjoyed watching it the second time more than the first time. Maybe I'd love it if I watched it a third time. <laughs> Maybe it's the... Um, when you start watching it the first time, you're expecting to cringe, and by when you watch it the second time, you know that you can you can back off a little you can bit. Relax. And just, yeah. Yes, that, that sounds <laughs> accurate to me as well. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again, everyone, for tuning in. We'll be back in another month with another film. Uh, until then, uh, remember share the episode. Uh, come and join the Facebook group and all that other stuff. Send us an email. When you said that, immediately popped into my head. Send me an email. Ooh, send me an email. Ooh, 
right now. I don't know why, but there you go. <laughs> wow, Lydia's writing music over there. Right now. <laughs> now we definitely need to sign off. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Bye. <laughs> I can't I can't help it that you put brilliant lyrics in my head. <laughs>